Welcome back to Talking Trade. I'm Sandy Siegel, president of ME Day. And I'm Ian Coxett at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we all know that uh, foreign policy often drives trade policy for individual countries. Uh, today's speaker is a, uh, an expert, uh, an authority uh, on the interaction between foreign policy and trade policy, uh, Gosong Fongkem, an international trade lawyer with Paige Fura PC in Chicago. Uh, and also uh, the author of a book, a recent book, Trade Crash, a primer on surviving and thriving in pandemics and global trade disruptions. There's the book. We'll hear more about that in just a moment. So Gosong, I want to ask, uh, uh, first of all, very generally, uh, you've described in a recent blog post, you've described the Biden administration's foreign policy as centered on human rights. So how do we see this and how in general would you say that affects their trade policy measures? Uh, thank you, Ian, uh, for inviting me to your show. Um, and before I, I actually even answer your question, I'd like to make a quick disclaimer that the views uh, expressed by me today are my own and do not necessarily represent those of my law firm or some of my clients. Um, now, to get back to your question, um, when you study trade history, uh, I think the one constant you will often find is that trade policy and foreign policy oftentimes intertwine with uh, foreign policy uh, tailored to promote trade interests. Uh, from a US perspective, which is of interest to us, for example, uh, um, over the last 100 years or so, when the US government has oftentimes entered into uh, trade negotiations, they've done so under the assumption that open markets essentially fosters um, democracy which in turn uh, promotes uh, world peace. In fact, um, trade policy has been the bedrock of US foreign policy since World War II. So I think it's within this framework that we should look at uh, Biden's uh, human rights-centered uh, foreign policy. I personally believe it's really a, uh, a democracy promotion policy anchored on human rights, um, workers' rights, environmental rights, et cetera, et cetera, with the goal to promote uh, uh, US trade interests. So what does that policy essentially mean for a Wisconsin business uh, that's engaged in international trade? I personally believe, ironically, that the policy uh, itself continues President Trump's uh, America first tough approach to handling uh, trade disputes. Mm. Uh, and um, so if anyone had been expecting a significant change on the trade front, I think they've certainly been disappointed so far. As you all know well, the tariffs are still here. Yeah. And the US government is continuing uh, to, uh, to enforce, uh, uh, strictly enforce uh, uh, US trade laws against trading partners. I think the only thing that has changed so far is really just the tone at the top and the strategy. So. so just the motivation rather than the policies themselves. Exactly. Right. Interesting. Um, I certainly, you know, support all the human rights issues and, and you know, and, and doing that politically. I've also got, you know, the business perspective of things and the challenges for businesses, um, for the importers we represent as customs brokers. I'm, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of these um, forced labor, whole, you know, withhold release orders and so forth that, that are being imposed. Um, I have some personal experience for clients of mine that have been impacted 
on goods being detained, um, which you know can be lengthy, expensive, and, and obviously disruptive. And the burden is on the importer, as you know, to prove that goods that that they source um, are not directly related in the supply chain to any of the suppliers or manufacturers that um, are um, presumed to be, you know, in employing forced labor and so forth. But that can be really challenging. Um, and there's some industries like palm oil and, you know, the Uyghur area and cotton, you know, manufacturers where it's really hard to go all the way back in the sourcing to make sure that your supplier is, doesn't have any connections um, you know, with some of these companies that are violators. How, as an attorney, you know, what advice can you offer in, um, for importers that are impacted by these products and, and the various withhold release orders imposed on being proactive, uh, you know, doing their homework, doing their due diligence on, on sourcing and so forth? Well, I, I think, Sandy, that's a, a very good question. Um, so the U.S. government has accused uh, the Chinese government of, I guess, committing cultural genocide, which obviously the Chinese government denies it. And as, as you know well, that actually has implications on the trade side. So bearing that in mind, I think we often advise most of our clients to essentially remain vigilant and to uh, track and monitor ongoing developments uh, that could impact uh, their business. And, and we know, as you eloquently stated, that um, based on the, tra uh, the trade actions that have been taken so far by the US government, uh, we will likely see more scrutiny on transactions that could be deemed by the US government to have use false labor or could be used uh, to violate essentially uh, human rights. So from a sourcing importing perspective, uh, we would typically advise our clients uh, to evaluate their entire supply chain uh, to ensure that uh, their products were not uh, produced using false labor. In some cases, we've even advised some of our clients to consider shifting uh, their, supply, their manufacturing operations outside of highly sensitive uh, areas or, or areas that the U.S. government uh, believe are quite sensitive to, uh, to, uh, to, to some of the sports labor issues like Xinjiang or, or Malaysia, for example, with the gloves. Or palm oil, as a matter of fact, is, is a major uh, commodity in West Africa. That's also an area of, of sensitivity. But obviously, for example, if China is a big market for you, that's probably not a, a good option, I believe, uh, because you, you run the risk of, uh, of retaliation on the importing side into China. And I've also heard uh, that the Chinese government is, is thinking about implementing what they call the anti-sanctions laws, which basically just means uh, if you comply with US uh, sanctions against Chinese companies, you are essentially violating Chinese laws. So that could be a big headache for US companies with major significant operations in China. So they would basically have to remain vigilant on, on that. Now from an export perspective, for example, um, uh, they should again continue to review and update uh, 
their exporting process to ensure that uh, they do not inadvertently um, export without the necessary export license or export to a sanctioned uh, entity or, or companies or so. So, uh, and most of these companies, most of the companies are already doing most of these things. They just have to essentially remain more vigilant. Okay. Well, I, I think your advice on sourcing elsewhere is sometimes the easiest because, you know, as I understand, sometimes everything funnels back to a couple of key manufacturers in an area and it's it's really hard to um you know as an importer to to be certain your goods don't somehow you know aren't relative to that so thank you thank you for that i agree i agree um we have just a, a minute or two left go song can you tell us about your book i'm interested in that and and share some you know some of your 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 key points in that and can you see? There it is. Yeah, we yes. see it. Yes. Yep. Okay. An actual book. Yeah, it is. Hardcover. Hard so when we started writing this book, uh, myself and my um, my co-author, Bruce Aiken, that I used to work for a, a long time ago, uh, I mean, our goal was to essentially um, uh, inform the business community of, of the drivers of the international tra uh, trading system. I, I mean, the book was really written as a result of uh, the so-called Trump's trade war with China. So, um, and then COVID-19 came and caused so much damage to uh, the international trading uh, environment that we felt that any book on, on trade disruption needed to at least include a chapter on, on COVID-19. So we spent uh, the earlier part of, uh, I would say, last observing the impact of COVID-19 on the U.S. economies and that of other countries. And um, the risk management strategies that they deployed to, to sort of manage the pandemic. And our goal then, even now, always still remains the same, that even if we were to find a vaccine on COVID-19, um, trade disruption will essentially not go away anytime soon. In fact, there have been so many different vaccines now in the market. Uh, in fact, we actually always believe that trade disruptions would essentially continue to increase, especially given the uh, geopolitical tension between the U.S. and China, which is, which are the two largest economies in the world at this particular moment, as they continue to compete for global leadership in economics and, uh, and technology. So any companies that operate uh, within that international trading environment must essentially have a, a plan on how to manage trade risk, whether that risk is business risk, cultural risk, political risk, but they should really have a plan. And in the book, we provided a number of strategies uh, to help the business community do just that. Well, I, I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Thank thanks, thanks, Gosling. And uh, uh, gloomy, a gloomy prospect, I guess. It sounds like the trade war pandemic is going to last just as long as the real one. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it might, but but I think it's we should always be hopeful, right? I mean, so long as uh, the uh, competition does not become kinetic, I think that's uh, that's a good thing for all of us here. So, thank you. Good to end on a high note. So, thanks, Gosling. Really good talking thank to you, you, and we'll look forward to seeing you again. This has been Talking Trade. I uh, look forward to seeing you all again in the next episode. Bye now.
Thank you.